1: Have you ever tried to meditate regularly but had trouble sticking to it? Have you told yourself that you just don't have enough discipline to sit and tame your mind, rest in the space between thoughts, or achieve a completely blank mind? Our guest today, Dean Slider, advocates what he calls natural meditation. He says it is as natural as breathing, walking, laughing, or being the I that you already are. There's no straining to concentrate or the need to hold a spiritual attitude, nor do you need to imitate someone else's lifestyle. Join us today as we explore natural meditation with our guest, Dean Slider. Dean Slider has spent a lifetime learning authentic methods of natural meditation from Eastern and Western sages and making them accessible to thousands, including prisoners, tech innovators, filmmakers, high school students, and entrepreneurs. He has completed numerous retreats and pilgrimages in Tibet, India, Nepal, and Europe, and for decades has led workshops throughout the United States. Dean Slider is the author of The Zen Commandments, Why the Chicken Crossed the Road and Other Hidden Enlightenment Teachings, Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies, and Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. Join us for the next hour as we explore the life-changing properties of meditation that already exists within us with our guest, Dean Slider. I'm Justine willis toms I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dean, welcome.
2: Thank you, Justine. It's really great to be back here.
1: Thank you. It's so great to have you back here. And I'm looking forward to this conversation about... Meditation and just what it is. And before we get into it, I'd love for our listeners to know a little bit about your background. You, I know that in you've been described that at some point you took a break from college and you hitchhiked across <laughs> the U.S. and even rode the rails, so to speak, mm-hmm. even in boxcars. And, mm-hmm. and so, what was that about?
2: Yeah. Well, the short version of that was is that I was a hippie. Uh, I attended the the University of Hippie for a few years, uh, and really I was like a lot of people in the mid and late 60s looking around. I knew that there was something more. There was this tremendous influx of new and really old ancient information, but that was newly being made available in the United States, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I just had to get away from the the track of being in college and studying English lit, even though I I love that as well, and and really put my attention on that inner dimension.
1: And then when you went back to college, and, and at some point, you started traveling around the world as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ending up in India and Tibet and other places, Europe. So, and finding some very interesting teachers. Mm -hmm. So, can you say something about that?
2: Well, my career as a meditator started um, with a very brief foray into Zen practice. And right in, in San Francisco, I lasted for less than a week at that Because the teachers kept telling me that I had to sit motionless like a stone Buddha. If my nose itched, I couldn't scratch it. If my leg was stiff, I had to tough it out. And I was expected to do something similar with my mind. At least as I understood the instructions, I was supposed to not let my mind waver. And it became clear to me very quickly that I was not going to be able to do this.
1: Well, I want to say about Zen meditation, now some of our listeners may disagree (laughs) with me, but I would say... That's like jumping into the deep waters because it, it's, it's very, I, I want to use the word rigid in that way. and Not that it's it, people can't benefit from it mm-hmm. because I know a lot of people do. But boy, I'm like you. I tried it and I, <laughs> I, I, I just, it wasn't my path.
2: Right. And the Zen teachers themselves say that. They say it's not for everyone. They say it's not for most people, uh, and I have dear friends who are Zen practitioners and I have deep respect for their ability to sit like a rock, but I realize I was not wired like that i'm uh, you know I've always been someone with a jumpy mind and a jumpy fidgety body, and so it was good because that kicked me out of the Zen nest very quickly and forced me to look around to look for Authentic, not watered down, but authentic, effective, deep end of the pool methods that nevertheless could work for, you know, what I call meditation for the rest of us, that could work for regular non-stone Buddha people like myself, <laughs> and, and I found those teachers in a number of traditions. I, I studied uh, for m- many years with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was, you know, famous with the, his for spreading transcendental meditation throughout the the world. Um, and he was very clear that not only that you can meditate in a way that's natural and effortless, but that that's the most effective way because. All the efforts, all our strenuous trying to create a non-agitated state of mind is itself a form of agitation. <laughs> <All> <laughs> you, right. you know, it's like um, uh, swimming around, doggy paddling around on the surface of the ocean, trying to beat down all those pesky waves and ripples, which is self-defeating. It's it's an impossible task. What natural meditation means in its various forms, as it's been called different things in different traditions. What natural meditation means is just letting yourself settle about three inches below the surface of the water. And there, lo and behold, the ocean is silent no matter what's going on with the waves. So yeah, okay, there's some thoughts going on there. There's some sounds going on outside. There's some traffic rolling by. Fine. It doesn't matter. It's all a, a texture of the silence, which actually you are at your core. It's just resting in what you are in your own essence.
1: So when when you say that uh, you you follow it with ease, I, I think of something that you wrote in your book about uh, all nature goes for efficiency. I mean, it goes for the least uh, resistance, like water running to the ocean. Can you yeah. describe that?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a law in physics called the principle of least action. It's when you stick a pencil into, or a straw, uh, into a glass of water, and you know the, the part that's submerged looks bent compared with the part that's not submerged. And that's because water is a denser medium than light, and the, uh, I'm sorry, water is a denser medium than air. And so the light that's traveling through the water is going to take a different route to get to your eyeball. Yes. it's going to it's not going to go straight it's, it's, everything goes the least with the least effort the, the route that a stream takes as it's uh, flowing through the countryside it's not going to go in a straight line if we were put in charge <laughs> of, of uh, picking the route for the water which would be a big mistake <laughs> we would say well a straight line seems like the obvious answer but if we made the Stream go in a straight line, it would be dashing against the rocks. The stream, Mother Nature, in her wisdom, knows to bring it around the rocks. So, probably we could say the ultimate law of nature in this context is gravity. Everything is pulled to the ground by gravity. On the cover of my book, there's a picture of a feather just about to settle to the ground. And that's because when a feather falls out of the sky, It's going to reach the ground. Gravity pulls it. It's inevitable. Now, if we try to supervise the process, if we try to drive it, we we might say, wait a minute, now it's going to the right. It's supposed to be going down. Now it's drifting to the left. Is it drifting a little farther to the left than it did to the right? Wait a minute. I think it's lodged in a tree branch now. It's never going to hit the ground now. That's the way most people approach meditation. They try to run the process they try to be the traffic cop of the process what all it takes is a little faith or understanding really that mother nature is running it she's gonna pull the feather to the ground in her own time in her own way now what is the gravity in the case of human consciousness what do we always gravitate toward Where well, I would submit And it's interesting, as I travel around and do talks and workshops, I I put that question out. And sometimes people will say, well, we're drawn to, I'm drawn to lots of thoughts, or I'm drawn to, we're drawn to death and taxes. (laughs) But what I would submit to you is that those are the things, those are the tree branches that we encounter on our way to the ground. Mm. That what we're always being drawn toward is something actually that we can't even name. But we could give it names like happiness, fulfillment, completeness. If we happen to have this kind of more exotic vocabulary, we might say enlightenment, nirvana, the kingdom of heaven within you. And that we're being drawn to that all the time. So that when you you go to Ben and Jerry's, and you're standing at the counter trying to decide what to pick from the menu. What you really want is nirvana. You want boundless, infinite happiness, but it ain't on the menu. So <laughs> you settle for Cherry for, Garcia for
1: sweetness, Yeah. Right.
2: And 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 which is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, i I think I'm going to go for some right after this interview. <laughs> it's pretty good. Like a lot of things are pretty good, but it's it, it's still settling. We know as human beings, we have this deep intuitive sense that boundlessness, some kind of boundless happiness is not only possible, but it's supposed to be there. In some way, it seems to be our birthright because we feel dissatisfied if it's not there. We, we, you know, I used to teach— but Is that
1: a, where desire comes from? That, that
2: yeah. All desires are really desires for that. You know, as I was driving up here, for some reason, I was remembering when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and I collected coins, and— You know, there's all this grading system that you learn about and the rare coins that you look for. And the ultimate is, you know, would be a brilliant, uncirculated uh, St. Gaudens gold double eagle 1885 S or something like that. And what I realized was that really what that was, right? Something rare, something precious, something brilliant and uncirculated was really what I was looking for was nirvana.
1: I'm here with a teacher of meditation, Dean Slider, and he advocates natural meditation, and that's the name of his book, Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to naturalmeditationbook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dean Slider and by the way he spells his name Dean D E A N his last name is Slider S L U Y T E R for those of you who are saying okay well, how do I spell his name um Dean a lot of people first get into meditation for different reasons, like to, for, to alleviate stress or to be a little more healthy or mm-hmm. to have a clarity of mind or whatever it is. Those, those are maybe the, the, the doorway in. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything to say about that?
2: Yes, there are many, many levels of how meditation is a good thing. And we're at, you know, a real mainstream moment for meditation in the culture. Back when I started teaching this stuff in 1970, I used to start every public talk with a joke about flying carpets and beds of nails and crystal balls just to clear the air, just to make the point that this is not that. But I felt that I had to do that. We don't have to do that anymore. Now, everyone has a brother-in-law who took a meditation class at the Y to lower his blood pressure or some such. The other day, uh, I saw an article about the the growing popularity of meditation in the tech industry. And they had a quote from the CEO of one tech company explaining how he requires everyone in his company to meditate so they can have the competitive edge. And he said something like, and you know, all that woo-woo stuff about inner peace, that's so retrograde. Ah. Now, I was sort of horrified to (laughs) read that uh, and to see, you know, inner peace written off as Mm woo-woo. But on the other hand, you know, my philosophy is fine. You'll come for the stress release You'll stay for the inner peace. Right. Um, There's, as a matter of fact, I, you know, I used to, when I wrote these books, I used to be happy if I get featured in something like Yoga Journal. I'm featured this month in the May issue of In Style.
1: Oh, In (laughs) Style. Now, is that the one that you see in the grocery store? It, that, uh, I don't know you where know. you
2: see it, but when, when my sister-in-law heard I was in In Style, she got very excited. She said, Well, everyone reads In Style. Ah. So <laughs> I don't, yeah. But it, it's a major fashion magazine. Yeah. Okay. And there's there's a there's a whole article on meditation, right. which through they tell me sheer coincidence is titled The Zen Commandments, which happens to be the title of, of a f- book I wrote book fifteen different. years ago. But about half the article is quoting me. Uh, and what's interesting is it's in their section on beauty. so med and okay, you know there's I, a
1: doorway that's there, another the, doorway there, there's
2: a door and I'm personally I'm you know I'm, I'm not claiming to be beautiful, but i'm I'm finally <laughs> getting old enough that people are impressed when they find out how yeah. old I am and I look that way yeah. I can offer it up as testimony. Well, I've been meditating regularly since I was eighteen, and the stuff works because it's not. Years that make you old. It's stress that makes you old. That
1: just reminds me of someone, a friend of yours, who said something like, um, "Sometimes we're asked to, when we're in a guided meditation, to go or to guided visualization, to go to your happy place." And and he said, "Dean, you know, anywhere you are, you're in your happy place." <coughs> yeah. And that's kind of yeah, that, and that's kind of a byproduct of uh, yeah.
2: And that is really what meditation is about. We were talking before about this just innate human search for boundless happiness. We are hardwired for that. Like, you know, heat-seeking heat missiles. We are nirvana-seeking <laughs> carbon-based organisms. <laughs> I love it. We, we can't help it. Our attention just spontaneously yeah. is always going toward the, the, the direction of greater happiness. And so this is why, fine, if you take up meditation so that you can, be, you know, Crush your competition in Silicon Valley, (laughs) fine, but that does not solve the basic predicament of being human, which is you'll still be dissatisfied until you start to really inculcate what you are at your core, which is boundless awareness. I I can't if that sounds woo woo to someone. I'm sorry. I you know, don't blame the weather on the weather man.
1: Okay, I I could go several places here, so I'm where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to a conversation that you and I had just before the interview. Yes. And this is this is about why practice meditation. Why why do it every day and kind of get into this space and learn it and I was saying to you, Dean, before the interview, how when after my partner Michael died, which was two years ago in 2013, um, and I took over New Dimensions, I had to face a lot of dragons. And what happened for me in that, I realized that because I had practiced meditation, I could do it with greater ease. I wasn't so... So, in in such a fear space, like oh, I can't do this. Oh, this is overwhelming. Oh, you know, why did he leave mm-hmm. me with this problem? And you know, all of that stuff that that mind stuff. And I, and I realize, oh, I, I I did it much it, with it without thinking about it. It just kind of. It, it, do you right. have something to say about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. When these things happen, when we lose a partner... And and as you know, I went through the same thing. My first wife, Maggie, passed in 2004. And also, for that matter, I was living in New Jersey... ...teaching at a prep school and teaching meditation in 2001... ...when the nine eleven attacks happened. And we knew people who lost family members in that. And you probably recall, right after that happened... The people were lining up on the sidewalks to get into churches. People reached out. They knew they needed to somehow contact their spiritual core. I don't even want to use that word spiritual, but their, their core. That, that the, Again, there's that intuition that there is a dimension of us which is beyond the ups and downs, which is just beingness, we could say which is not a mood, it's not an attitude, it's not a philosophy, it's not a concept, it's beingness. It's the silent ocean of existence that underlies all the waves, all the ups and downs of living. Now, those waves are always going to go up and down. There's, there's always going to be waves that crash against the shore. If you identify yourself as a wave and you see, man, all those other waves keep dying, all those other waves keep crashing against the shore, and I also am a wave, then that's horrifying. But if you realize, and again, not just conceptually, but experientially through regular daily practice of meditation, and it doesn't have to be for long hours, even just for a few minutes, making contact with that again, oh yeah, this is it, this inner ocean, this is what I am then when these things happen, as inevitably they happen, then we, we're not overwhelmed. We can deal with it. It doesn't mean that we become emotionally flat. It doesn't mean that we become like a rock or a potato, which is you know, one of the classic stereotypical misunderstandings of what meditation does. In fact, being in contact with our core frees us up to be much more deeply, more vividly, totally to experience our emotions because actually people who are not in touch with that beingness level that's beyond emotion, they're, without realizing it, afraid of their emotions. They're afraid of being overwhelmed by them, so they suppress them. So, you know, this allows you to be like, you know, Zorba the Greek, you know, dance did you say dance we just <laughs> on the beach and dance and 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 be joyous and be grieving and do all that a hundred percent because there's something even deeper that underlies it and that is what you are
1: so you're not saying like let's say if we're in anxiety you're not saying well push anxiety away just so, you know Erase it. Don't go there. Yep. It's your, your... What do you right. recommend?
2: Right. Well, what I recommend, first of all, is exactly what you said, which is, you know, we could put it like this. Don't wait for the fire to do the fire drill. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, when these things happen, when, you know, when when Michael died, you know, in your life, when Maggie died in, in my life, um, these are... this All this spiritual practice or meditative practice we've been doing... Those are the times we've been practicing for. Right. So you're used to it's You've inculcated that in your awareness. You know, there's a, um, an analogy that's used t- t- traditionally in India by, by teachers of meditation. That they say that every time you dip into meditation, it's like the traditional method of dyeing cloth. You take the white cloth and you dip it into the vat of, let's say, blue dye. And when it comes out, first, it's very deep, vivid blue. Then you stretch it out on a flat rock in the sun, and the sun bleaches out a lot of that blue color, but some of it remains color fast. Then you dip it again, fade it again, and you keep alternating like that until it's permanently bright blue. Now, in the same way, we dip our attention into this field of boundlessness, happiness, quiet, silence, whatever we want to call it. And then when we come out, a little bit of it sticks. So typically when people first come out of a meditation session, they feel, oh yeah, I'm really settled, I'm really mellow. And then, you know, something comes up and after you feel, oh darn, I I lost it. Uh But that's okay because the fading is just as important as the dipping.
1: And you never quite go back all the way. There's something that, that remains.
2: Yeah. Even if you just meditate once, your your cloth will never be white again.
1: It's. Uh, I think that the Tibetans call it, it, once you have a taste of the mm-hmm. nature of mind, yes. is the way they would say it, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's like something, like an aperture opens and it never quite closes all the way again.
2: Right. Right.
1: What Now, people often say, okay, well, meditation. I just get so many thoughts. And you have something to say about monkey mind that (laughs) a lot of people use the analogy. We've used it on New Dimensions, Mm -hmm. monkey mind. You look at that a little differently from many people.
2: As a matter of fact, I have a chapter in my book called The Myth of Monkey Mind. And I just pretty much rubbed my hands together. I couldn't wait to write that chapter because so many times when I've led workshops, given talks, and people say, oh, I could never meditate. My monkey mind is so active you won't be able to tame it. And I always say, yeah, you're right. I won't be able to tame your monkey mind. Now, there's a few reasons for that. The first reason is first of all, to back up because you'll see people say, oh, yes, the Buddha said we we all have monkey minds. That's not so. That's one of those bogus quotes you see on the Internet, along with all the ones attributed to Mark Twain and Abe Lincoln <laughs> and Einstein. Um, the Buddha did not say that. That was made up by Chinese writers centuries later.
1: I, we're All right. We're going to find out more about the myth of monkey mind in just one moment. But I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with meditation teacher Dean Slider, and he's the author of... Natural Meditation, a guide to effortless meditative practice. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dean Slider, and he's the author of Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, naturalmeditationbook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So, Dean, we're talking about the myth of monkey mind. So why is that a myth? What?
2: It's a myth, first of all, because people think, oh, the mind is like a monkey which is constantly and aimlessly swinging from branch to branch. That naughty, naughty monkey. (laughs) He's he's like Curious George, but not lovable. So you got to go after him with a big net and chain him down and, and hold him still. Now, the thing is, That the mind may in fact be going from thing to thing, from thought to thought in a fairly constant way, but it's not going aimlessly. Neither is the monkey. If you get the monkey, just gently get the monkey turned in the direction of a banana, that monkey's going to settle right down for exactly the reason that we were discussing before. Because the mind doesn't just randomly carry them around, it's looking for fulfillment. It's looking for happiness. If it doesn't find it in one thought, it'll go to the next thought. So people think, oh, I can achieve inner peace. I could achieve inner peace if I could only quiet my mind. But it's so hard to quiet the mind. Well, that's exactly backwards. What you do is allow gravity to take over you use, generally, you put the mind on some vehicle. And in the book, I introduce several different kinds of vehicles, such as a sound, resting the attention in the heart center. Notice I keep saying rest the attention, not focus, not concentrate. You can rest the attention in on the expanse of the open sky, a very popular Tibetan technique. Uh, you can rest it on a sound. You can rest it just on the notion of Eye of the experience or of one's experiences, and then just rest it there and let gravity do the rest. Now, as the mind settles down, we settle down naturally below the level of thoughts, like settling down into the silent depths of the ocean. And there's a tendency then for the thoughts to settle down as well, for the mind to become quiet. But it doesn't really matter. What we're doing, we're not creating silence. We're discovering the inner silence that underlies all the thought.
1: So it's like you are allowing silence or we're opening to it.
2: We're we're opening. We're (laughs) allowing ourselves to settle like like soaking in a hot tub, just allowing <laughs> right. ourselves to marinate in that silent beingness that's already there.
1: One of one of the meditations, and you 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 alluded to several of them just a minute ago. That you really kind of go into a little more detail in the book, and one of them, the sky meditation, I I loved. I just imagined, okay, if we could find a place where we just lay down like we did as a kid mm. you know lay down on the ground and just sort of open our eyes and look at the sky and do that meditation just just allow that to uh, to rest in that that expansive awareness of, of this blue sky and and how if we kept doing, if, they, we, if we once tasted that, I'll say, right. if we once tasted that, then I know that you've described how if we're in a workplace and things are being hectic, that you might just take a moment and look out the window. Mm-hmm. I love that.
2: Yeah. It's so simple. It's It's so simple. And as you say, Justine, once you get that taste of that sky, you start to realize that you don't even have to physically see the sky to rest in the sky in that expansiveness. It's everywhere. So you can, can look out the window. If it, if you don't have a window, one workplace technique that I give in the book is you can sit in your cubicle and re- with your eyes wide open, so you don't get busted for being some slacker, <laughs> you know, <laughs> meditating on the job. You can look straight ahead toward your computer monitor and rest your gaze around the perimeter of the monitor. Looks like you're you're really intently concentrating on your work <laughs> and you're just <sighs> letting go into the space around yeah. it.
1: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, another image that I, I just loved, you, you know, you have these helpful hints and like the computer monitor and, and looking at the... Uh, edge of it, you know, and allowing it to move out, uh, is uh, I think you were quoting uh, Ryan Gosling about thinking of ourselves as Bugs Bunny. I love that. I just you know you imagine yourself, okay, like we're just hectic, hectic, and say ah, imagine ourselves with a shoulder against the wall and our feet kind of crossed, kind of chewing on a (laughs) carrot, and saying, "Eh, what's up, doc?" You know, I mean, just he was so he's a. I don't know if all of our listeners know that character of bug cartoon character of Bugs Bunny, but he's a pretty relaxed character.
2: He, He he is. As a matter of fact, in my first book, which is out of print, but you can find copies of it online, I, I wrote a book back in 1990-something called Why the Chicken Crossed the Road and Other Hidden Enlightenment Teachings. And I have a whole chapter on Bugs Bunny there and on that, eh, what's up, doc, as, as a kind of a, an Enlightenment teaching. Eh is, is Bugs's mantra. And Bugs is um, ever resourceful. He's relaxed, as you say, but he's resourceful. No matter what comes up, he's able to deal with it without losing his cool. And what uh, Ryan Gosling was at the actor that I quote uh there, what he actually says is when you don't know what to do, just remember this. Always be bugs, never be daffy.
1: And now, Daffy. Daffy
2: Duck, who is exactly the opposite. Daffy is always running around, always um, uh, just completely worried, overwhelmed, caught up. All this, you know, you know. As Shakespeare said, "Sound and fury, signifying nothing." So, <laughs> right. so, so Bugs is just cool. He he looks like he's doing nothing, and he accomplishes everything. Daffy looks like he's doing everything, and accomplishes nothing. In connection with this, uh, the great 6th century Buddhist philosopher Shantideva said in a wonderful book, uh, The the Bodhisattva Way of Life, he said, and this one would make a good tattoo actually, (laughs) he said, if there's a solution to the problem, what's the point of worrying? If there's no solution to the problem, what's the point of worrying? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's so profound. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I a lot of people would complain, Dean, about, well, I don't have a quiet space to meditate. And you give such a beautiful analogy of of the kinds of meditations. One is in a prison and one is in a nice meditation place where where people are complaining about maybe a bus noise that comes Mm -hmm. by once Mm -hmm. in a while, and you compare that with the people, the inmates that you have instructed in a prison. So say, describe that, please. I started
2: work in 2005, I started working with a group at Northern State Prison in Newark, uh, which is, uh, I believe, considered the roughest prison in New Jersey. And working with these guys is just about my favorite thing in the world, It is so inspiring. I have learned so much from them. Um, And when I visited them just last week when I was back in New Jersey, I presented each of them with a a copy of my new book and they they were just so happy. They looked like their heads were going to explode. Um, And I was on the phone with with a, a graduate of that student who is now out in the free world. And I was saying, well, you know, maybe I've accomplished a few things for those guys. And he said, Dean, you made killers peaceful. So that that's very moving to me. But what I've learned from them, we sit in a, a, um, a cinder block chapel. They call it a chapel, but it's this just bleak cinder block building. And there are these big speakers right over our heads. And in the course of, a, you know, 20 or 20 Five, thirty-minute meditation, maybe five or six times announcements come over this thing and it's really loud. Attention, all areas, attention all units, Spanish choir out to the gym. Uh, I mean, it just, it just shakes your body. My guys sit there unfazed. Why? Because they live in the situation where they know to give up trying to change things. There's so much they, they can't, you know, it's the, the serenity prayer. Grant me the wisdom to uh, accept the things that I can't change. Uh, or what is it? The tranquility to accept the things I can't change. The wisdom to know the difference, to know which ones. And there you practically everything you can't change.
1: And they live in a cacophony of sound.
2: A cacophony of sound. So they don't have the luxury of saying, Dean, could you... Recently, I uh, led a meditation. I was a a guest teacher at a place on Wilshire Boulevard in in Los Angeles, which is a busy street. Beautiful space. And, you know, a lot of beautiful L.A. people there. Ah. And... When I walked into the space, I saw they were pumping in. They had a lovely, lovely sound system, and they were pumping in this kind of new-agey ambient music. And I asked about that, and the person who runs the place said, well, it's to cover up the traffic noise. And I said, could you please turn that off for my meditation? And she was a little dubious, but I got her to do it. I want people to to be okay to know that it doesn't matter, that... The sound of, a, of cars and motorcycles and trucks comes and goes in exactly the same way that thoughts come and go, that emotions come and go. And it's not about getting rid of those. It's about relaxing into that medium in which it all comes and goes, which is awareness, which is our deepest self.
1: And not making a, a judgment about, oh, I wish this was disappeared. I wish this wasn't part of it. or I had just had this same experience. Uh, just um, the other day, I was attending a talk at a Buddhist uh, retreat, not retreat, but Buddhist center. And it happened to be on Polk Street in San Francisco. And next door to this uh, center is a place where a homeless can kind of a little sanctuary, some sort of church or something. And a lot of homeless people live here. And in fact, the alleyway is called a meth alleyway. Mm. And, you know, so it's it's kind of rough
0: mm-hmm. in
1: some ways. And and they left the front door open uh, because, I think, for air to come in. And so at some point in the talk, we, were, we did a beautiful meditation, just gorgeous meditation uh, about, um, you know, May... I be happy, may I be peaceful, may you be happy, and it goes out to the whole world. It was just beautiful. And in the middle of that, you know, these homeless people were having an argument outside the door, Mm. you know, and these voices were coming in. And, you know, Dean, for me, I just— I felt so peaceful about mm-hmm. it. It was just mm-hmm. beautiful. I, it just kind of came in in a beautiful way yeah, in that, some way. That,
2: that contrast can be so beautiful. I love going to New York City and meditating in the subway.
1: We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm here with Dean Slider, and he's the author of Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. I'm Justine willis Tom's. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dean Slider, and he's the author of Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. And, Dean, I would love for you to share a little reading from your book to give some flavor of how engaging it is. So, could you do a little piece of reading about, about thoughts? and?
2: Okay, so this is from Chapter 14, The Myth of Monkey Mind. What do we do about these shifting, insubstantial thoughts? Well, what does the ocean do about waves? What does the sky do about clouds? What does space do about galaxies? Nothing. The waves can toss all they want, and the ocean goes on resting in its bed. The clouds can rain or hail or blow away, and the sky remains equally skylike. Galaxies are created and destroyed over billions of years, and space is naturally, timelessly untouched, incorruptibly spacious. You are not your thoughts. You are the space-like awareness within which they frictionlessly come and go. So, forget about it. You can treat thoughts as if they're in a language you don't understand. I can't hear you. All this time you've been playing whack-a-thought. Now you can just drop your mallet and refuse to play. Let them pop their little heads up and down. So what?
1: I love it. I love it. And that that idea of whack-a-thought coming from whack-a-mole game. And, and uh, just uh, that's what we we can get into that whole syndrome of Okay, I don't want to think that thought. No, no, I'll whack that thought, I'll whack it, and they'll keep popping up and mm-hmm. keep popping up. Another analogy that you use that I love, that it goes back to your work as a movie critic, which mm. you have that book about uh cinema, cinema and Nirvana. 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 You talk about when when you I love this one. When when let's say I'm I have that thought that's just persisting and maybe it's causing me a lot of agitation. You just blow it up. You just <laughs> blow it up like a bluey. And you you imagine that scene that we've all seen in movies where the hero is just calmly walking away as the building behind him is just going, blowing up. Blowing up. Right. And he's know.
2: so cool that he doesn't turn around to look at it. Right.
1: Yeah. So it's, <laughs> these are just some of the, the ways in which It gives us a flavor of what you're talking about.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's no one way. That's why I suggest so many different vehicles in the book that you can use in this process of, of settling down into what you already are. The last chapter of the book is titled The Door is Everywhere. After a while, you start to realize that everything... Whether I'm sitting on a cushion with my eyes closed or walking through the park or riding the subway through New York City, everything is the door to what I am, to what existence is, which is this ocean-like beingness, beyond space and time, of which everything else is the the ripples and the waves. And if you start straining against it, if you decide, oh, I want to do this thing called meditation, and uh, that's a thing, and there's this other thing going on called noise, and these two things are in conflict, that's really just a way of distracting yourself. You know, all the things that people think are distractions in meditation, like noise and thoughts, those are actually the meditation. All those things that people think are meditation, like concentrating and clearing your mind, that's the distraction. The idea that you have to do that or ever can do that, that's the distraction. That's a way of distracting yourself from what you are, which is the awareness that, that underlies and embraces all of this. Just like a sky that has room for every kind of cloud, whether there's a, there's a hurricane blowing or gentle zephyrs going through it, the sky is the sky. Awareness is awareness. Beingness is beingness,
1: and it's un- untouched by the hurricane. Untouched.
2: Yeah, this guy doesn't say, "Okay, when this hurricane passes, I'll be able to go back to being sky-like." No,
1: I. You know, one of the techniques that I use uh, often is um, like thinking my, th- reminding myself when I'm getting, the my thoughts are like a wild horse, runaway mm-hmm. horse. Mm-hmm. And what I do, like, I'll be meditating maybe on the breath. Maybe I'll start with the breath or maybe saying a mantra in my my head Mm -hmm. and then just kind of getting myself relaxed. And then after a while, I might notice that, oh, my God, I just went to Timbuktu. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to see how far away from my cushion Uh I got, you Uh know, and kind of. I, I what I do is I kind of smile, I, with humor. I kind of, oh, that's interesting, and then slowly, you know, just easily bring myself back to my cushion.
2: Well, you know, having a good laugh at yourself is always good. That's good, just about a hundred percent of the time.
1: Oh, only that? Only a hundred percent of the time? Oh, goodie.
2: Right, but but now, and here's a little a little kind of a, a, a good. Technical tip. When you realize you've been off on some long train of thoughts, and it happens to everyone, the crucial moment is not all those moments when you're on that train. The crucial moment is that moment when you realize, oh, I have been on this long train to Timbuktu or whatever. At that moment, people think, okay, now I need to do something. No you don't. Because at the moment when you realize that, oh, I have been caught up, you're no longer caught up because you've realized it. While you're caught up, you can't do anything about it because you're caught up, you don't realize it. After you realize it, you don't have to do anything about it because you're no longer caught up. That's the point where people blow it because they go, now I have to do something, I have to come back somewhere. No. Where has all, You have not gone to Timbuktu, Justine. Okay. You've been sitting there on your cushion all along. It all takes place within awareness. It's all just thoughts. All those thoughts are right here within awareness. Where else can they be? So it's the, the moment, the, all the moments when you're on the thoughts are not the problem. The moment where, that one moment where you think, now I've got to do something, come back somewhere. That's where it's a problem. So when you realize that that's been happening, it's already done. Here you are. Right. Just be right where you are.
1: One of the meditations that you describe that I feel is especially beautiful, and that's I I would call it the benefactor Mm -hmm. meditation, Mm is as Westerners, we have a bit of trouble loving ourselves Mm -hmm. and receiving love Mm -hmm. and, and so forth. So can you describe that meditation? Right.
2: Right, and I'm very deeply indebted to my teachers in the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition, the Tibetan tradition, for that practice. What we call the benefactors are people who have loved us. As Mr. Rogers put it in his speech when he he accepted his honorary lifetime Emmy, the people who have loved us into being. We all have people who have loved us into being. And it might be a parent or a grandparent or a, or a wonderful teacher that you had. It might be a, a spiritual archetype such as the Buddha or the Blessed Virgin. It might be the Dalai Lama. It might be Mr. Rogers. We go into more detail in, in that chapter, but essentially, we first settle down into spaciousness, and then we visualize the benefactor in the space above our head streaming that love for us down in, as this stream of Beautiful, brilliant light that just irradiates and purifies and heals every bit of our body. And we generally go in steps in the body, the mind, the feelings, and then that kernel of ego, of the sense of a separate self. And just let all that be washed, all that be washed, and just accept that. Just like a like a puppy uh, lying on a rug in a shaft of afternoon sunlight coming through the window, as one of my teachers put it. Just marinating in that. And in Tibetan tradition, you would practice that for weeks or months. And then there's a later step that you add to it that I describe where as we continue to receive that light of unconditional love from the benefactor above our head... We visualize someone else in the space in front of us, and that pouring down into us and out through the front of our chest and irradiating that person. So, for people who feel, "Oh, I can't. I don't know how to give unconditional love," we—it's it, a—it's a brilliantly constructed method for just letting it come through you as a conduit. Because the benefactors know how to give unconditional love. They're the experts. We just let their love flow through us. And in that way, we become sort of junior varsity benefactors and start stepping up into that status.
1: That's so beautiful. I just love it. Thank you for describing that for us. And um, I just want to briefly, we just have like, you know, 30 seconds here. Uh, One of your teachers is someone Muji? Yes. Yes, and yes. Uh, just just want to acknowledge him. Just can you say just a word or two about him?
2: Oh, Muji is just such a beautiful being. And in the book, I describe my first meeting with him, which really was life changing. He's from Jamaica, and he is uh, a student of a student of Sri Ramana Maharshi, a very illustrious enlightened being in India of the twentieth century, and. What he does is with incredible clarity and grace and humor and the warmth of a big Jamaican teddy bear keeps bringing your attention back to this question, who am I, what am I? And he does it with such brilliant clarity that all your beliefs that, oh, I'm this body, I'm these thoughts, I'm these opinions, I'm all this personal history, I'm all these hopes and desires. It just all is seen for how insubstantial it is. And you see what you are beneath that, which is that boundless beingness.
1: Dean, I want to thank you for being with us on New Dimensions.
2: Thank you, Justine.
1: I've been speaking with Dean Slider, and he's the author of Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice, And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, naturalmeditationbook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3540.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.